it turns out these ethical intuitions over which you know you might determine tax policy also play out in our lives, right? Um, at the end of my life, I have to write a will. Uh, should I leave the most money to the child who deserves it the most? Should I leave the most money to the child who needs it the most? Um, should I leave everyone the same amount of money? Um, you can see this exact same moral intuitions mm. echo through all of our political debates. G'day, and welcome to The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation, a podcast about living a happier, healthier, and more ethical life. Our society puts a lot of emphasis on smarts, but not enough on wisdom. So this podcast seeks out wise people who can share their insights on passion, grit, love, and empathy. We'll discuss everything from sport to parenting, and hear the stories of some of the world's wisest souls. If you enjoy the podcast, let your friends know so they can share the insights. Now, let's dive in to today's conversation. I first met Justin Wolfers when we were in sixth grade. We'd both been admitted to the same school and our parents decided we ought to meet. Uh, we stayed good friends through James Roos, separated a little and then rejoined paths as economists in our 20s. Uh, he was one of the groomsmen at my wedding and is one of the most important uh, soulmates that I've got. So that's why I've invited Justin back for a second chat on The Good Life. Uh, he's back in Australia, a country where he grew up, but uh, and now visits for a month every year, uh, and uh, is working on a range of interesting projects, including uh, a brand stonking new economics textbook. But before we get, to, we get to that, Justin, what's it like to be in Australia? Mate, it's beautiful. Um, uh, those of your listeners who are uh, in Australia take the beauty here for granted, um, and there's nothing like 20 years away to remind you of just how extraordinary the place is. Um, you get off the plane and you get hit by the light and it's a certain light you can only see in this country. Um, you see, there's a shade of olive you only see on an, on an Australian eucalyptus. Uh, you can get a can of Solo, which is quite a good drink. Um, people are happy. Uh, it's egalitarian from the moment you get in at the front of the cab. Um, food's fantastic. Wine's fantastic. Um, hell of a way of living, really. Do you think of yourself as more Australian or American? You've got dual citizenship, so you could pick either. Mate, I am what I am. Um, an Australian, someone who's born in Australia, lives in America. I'm deeply engaged in the United States and US policy. That would make me American. Um, you know, I, I feel a great pride um, and a great joy in being back in Australia. You know, if I, I just really hope that, you know, at the Olympics, the Matildas don't end up playing the US women's national soccer team. Truth is, I'd probably cheer for the Matildas in that game. Um, maybe that's how you measure it. What do you admire about the States? Uh, obviously, you're married to an American, but I think there's more than that uh, as to why you're living in America now rather than living in Australia. Uh, what, do you, what, what do you really find yourself missing after a month in Australia? Put aside missing, I'll just come back and, and tell you what I admire. It's a place of tremendous intensity. Um, when people... It's a cliche and I'm sorry for it, but, you know, it would be socially unacceptable in Australia to say to someone, I want to be the first in the world to do something or the best in the world at something. Um, and on campus at a great American university, that's just what people say. And they try and do it and we all fail over and over again. But that intensity is, um, is marvellous. Um, there's a, a different 
form of honesty among people. Um, uh, but yeah, no, I think it's the intensity. Yeah. I think that's probably true for a lot of Australians in America. From Hollywood to Silicon Valley to Harvard. It's a place of extremes. Mm. Um, you know, uh, if you're uh, American's best economist, you'll win the Nobel Prize. If you're America's best actor, you'll win an Oscar. If you're America's richest person, you're worth nearly a trillion dollars. Um, and it goes at the other end of the extreme too. Um, and getting to see some of those extremes, particularly the good ones, is exciting. It's thrilling. Uh, you know, you sometimes get to be invited in rooms you never thought you'd be in. Um, so, yeah, it's... Uh, yeah. That's not very articulate, is it? No, it is. It, uh, it certainly, a lot of it resonates uh, with me in the, in the four years that I spent uh, living in the States. And just that sense of, of energy. I'm always struck, particularly with New York, I find when I get, get out of the subway for the first time in New York, there's just this initial couple of minutes where I feel taken aback by the, the sheer energy and intensity of the place. It's, it's almost like New York is, is America kind of dialed up to 11. Um, everyone on earth agrees with you on that, except me. Um, so I remember back when we did theatre sports, Andrew, uh, that was a bit, and I meant to accept it and amplify what you just said, but the truth is I get out of the subway, I find it grimy and disgusting. Um, so New York has managed to find joy um, in, in what you described. Um, uh, a day in New York versus a day in Sydney, I know which one's more beautiful. I know which one is more peaceful. Um, you're right. You don't quite get the, the the intensity in Manhattan is unlike any other place, um, but uh, it, it it actually leaves me a little cold. Mm. In what ways do you find being in America makes you more productive? Uh, is it this the uh, co-workers, uh, the resources that are available to you as as an economist? Uh, what is it that uh, that really makes a difference for you? It's the people around you. Um, that's not to belittle. The people who are around me in Australia at all, um, but it you know it's your co-workers, it's your students, um, really good for me, doctoral students, um, really good master's students, really good undergraduates. Um, the absolute lack of a sense of shame about wanting to do something really well mm. um, is exciting. Um, and you know I get to wake up and talk about economics, and then spend my day about talking economics, and then come home and talk economics, and then my children will tell me not to talk about economics, but. They're kids of economists, so they can't actually help it, even if they think they're not talking about economics. Um, and there's, you know, and, and that varies in different ways. So I'm in Michigan right now, it's predominantly an academic enterprise, so we're talking about academic economics, a little bit more theoretical. Um, Washington, D.C., I loved living there. I felt the sense of energy you felt in New York, mm. in Washington, um, Hollywood for nerds. Um, and, um, you know, every conversation, I'd drop my kid off at daycare and I could be dropping my kid off and it would be someone who was working at the World Bank on some fascinating topic. Um, it could be someone starting a business. Um, or, um, and uh, again, that sense of possibility. You and Betsy have uh, just finished a, uh, what is it, five-year project of uh, working on a new undergraduate textbook. Uh, tell me how, how you found that, uh, that, that project, what it's been like to work on and what your aim is for the book. Oh, I'm about to sound very American. Um, it was a labour of love. It was absolutely intensity. It was exactly what we're just describing of waking up. Um, the way I'm an economist, I'll describe the economics of this. There's no point writing the second best economics textbook. 
because every student has the choice by the first best or the second best. Um, so you do have to have the audacity, and I hope this doesn't sound um, unduly immodest, to try to write the best one that's ever been written. Um, and that means waking up and writing a paragraph, then rewriting it, and then sweating over it, and then comparing it back to the literature, and then market testing it. And um, there's not a sentence in the book that hasn't been rewritten, I'd say, a minimum of 12 times, um, read by dozens of people, researched to death. Um, and so, you know, you only ever undertake a project like that, and it really has been a tremendous amount of work because you see an opportunity, and the opportunity is to reshape how the next generation learns and understands and relates to economics. And if I can make my field, your field, um, exciting, accessible, if I can help, market size really matters here. If I can help hundreds of thousands of people make better decisions, mm. no matter what they're doing, whether they become politicians like you, Andrew, whether they become academics like me, whether they open a local um, gas station, um, if I can help them make better choices, you know, I can, uh, I can feel like you know, some part of the effort was worth it. And you've always had a strong interest in public policy. Do you feel a bit of that Paul Samuelson sense that you don't care who writes the nation's laws so, so long as you can write its textbooks? That is um, t classically immodest Samuelson and the greatest call to arms you've ever heard. Um, <laughs> look, I've spent enough time talking to congressmen, um, congressional representatives uh, in the US talking to you know, politicians like you in Australia and I'm always stunned by how strong their economic views are. That came from somewhere. And it turns out many of these people, I knew them when they were 22, when I see them you know, in their 40s now in, in politics, they had those views at 22. They came from somewhere. Um, so I have the opportunity to help shape that. Um, and those biases really, really, really matter. Mm. So I remember vividly after the global financial crisis, the debate about whether there should be a fiscal expansion, how big, whether should we, have, we should have a second one in the United States. And the Democrats who had sort of vaguely Keynesian intuitions in their bones were almost uniformly for it. Um, the uh, Republicans very sort of austerity focused, mm. completely against it. And these were, I think, sincerely held intuitions. Their subsequent choices made by Republicans may be suggest otherwise. Um, and so, in many cases, again, I think real, na real questions of national importance were being made based on what they'd read in their early 20s. Um, and so one of the ways we can fight in the marketplace for ideas, or compete in the marketplace of ideas, is try to make sure that students get a fair, balanced, intuitive, useful, accurate understanding of economics. You use economics in your everyday life as much as anyone I've ever met. Uh, how much of what you're aiming to do with the textbook is to have people think more like economists and how much is it to shape economic thinking? I don't want to tell anyone what to do. Um, I don't want to tell them to become economists. Um, but actually, I think everyone uses economics every day in their lives. I'm just somewhat more conscious about it. Um, you know, when you try and decide whether to have a child, um, the poet will say, talk about the joy that it brings. Um, the biologist will talk about the hormonal urges. The reality is that both of those are, are just different words for the benefits. And you'll think about the costs um, and, um, and, and choose accordingly. Um, and so I really, and the better you understand what the relevant benefits and costs are, the more likely you are to make a better decision. So I don't want to force you to be an economist. What I want to do is equip you with a set of tools 
which you can play into to whatever degree you like, um, mm. so that you can make clear, more clearer choices, um, ones that serve you and your interests better. Um, one of the things, um, and so that really is, again, I don't want people sitting down working out marginal benefit, marginal cost spreadsheets, but I do want to make sure that when they think about, say, having a kid, it's a really good example, what are the costs? Some of the most important costs are not financial costs, they're opportunity costs. Mm. It's the, the opportunity to continue with your career. Um, the opportunity to wait a few years and have a child when you're, you're a little older and, and more settled. Um, and again, a more clear-eyed sense of that might lead people to make better choices for themselves. One of the things that I'm proud about in the book is this is not sort of the economic rationalist, uh, you must do everything selfishly. Um, in the very first chapter, we say uh, the cost-benefit principle isn't greedy if you are. So if you enjoy going out to coffee with your grandmother, it might cost you more because you have to pay for her coffee, but you know that you're making the world a better place by spending time with your grandmother. Um, you're not selfish. And so as an economist, I'm not going to ask you to forget that. I'm just going to ask you to remember to call that a benefit for when it when you want to go and compare that to costs. So if you truly are altruistic, I want you to make better altruistic choices too. There's a, a set of efficiency questions and, and a set of equity questions. I suppose everyone writing a first year economics textbook would uh, want students to avoid the fallacy of the sunk cost, to think at the margin. And then there's questions that, that have more distributional implications, uh, the size of fiscal stimulus, the the proper role of taxes in the economy. Uh, Did you find yourself being in that sort of um, Michael Jordan dilemma that uh, Republicans buy sneakers too and so needing to perhaps hold back on some of your egalitarian impulses at certain certain points in writing the book? Because if you want to be number one in in, in America, you can't just write a textbook uh, for Democrats. My job isn't to tell students how much they care about inequality. My job is to try and give them frameworks for thinking about their own moral intuitions. Uh, so I don't have any interest in turning a Republican into a Democrat. Not when I'm writing a textbook. You know, if I was out door knocking, absolutely. My job is a. We should say Betsy worked for uh, the Obama White House, so uh, her credentials are out there fairly clearly. Yeah, no, I have views about the world without a doubt, but it, 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 I, I, the young Justin would never believe that the old Justin sincerely believes this, but. I just want students to have clear, coherent ways of expressing their moral intuitions. And so, you know, this division between efficiency and equity that some economists talk about, most economists think it's nonsense. I don't need to pretend it's true. So let's have a real discussion about distribution. And it turns out these ethical intuitions over which, you know, you might determine tax policy also play out in our lives, right? Um, At the end of my life, I have to write a will. should I leave the most money to the child who deserves it the most? Should I leave the most money to the child who needs it the most? Um, should I leave everyone the same amount of money? Um, you can see this exact same moral intuitions mm. echo through all of our political debates. Um, and so I just want to, you know, there are fuzzy and clear ways of expressing those intuitions. And so I, my only real preference is for clear over fuzzy. Economics has a gender problem. Uh, in the wake of the Me Too movement, a uh, survey of the American economics profession found 
troublingly high levels of uh, sexual harassment uh, reported among female economists. How have you looked to address that in the textbook? And do you want to talk to us a little bit also about other ways in which you've been involved in uh, the, the response to this in the US economics profession? Yeah, so this is something I care very deeply about. Um, and, you know, it comes from a very simple lived experience. Um, my partner, Betsy Stevenson, is a female economist. I'm a male economist. We've been through the profession from graduate school through to working at, at Wharton and then at Michigan and her experience in Washington together. So I've got to live the profession once through my eyes as a man and to see it once through hers as a woman. I've gotten to see... Often when we've done identical things, maybe even a co-authored paper, or maybe we've given the same class in adjoining classrooms, down to the same joke, um, how we're treated differently. And um, that is an absolute eye-opener of an experience. Um, and so, frankly, that did radicalise me. I felt that I could see gender issues. Every time I confessed it to a female friend of mine, they said, what are you crazy? Of course that's true. That's obvious. Um, it was less obvious to the broader profession. And the profession, you know, I've written a series of New York Times columns, of which I'm very proud, um, which have really tried to highlight some of the uh, emerging body of research, pointing to really important and very troubling disparities. Um, and that's helped spur a moment within the profession. And we now speak about these issues with a subtlety and an awareness that we didn't five mm. years ago. Mm. Um, you know, there's a, I don't know whether that's the glass half full story. We're really talking about it. We're getting there. The glass half empty story is we're not there. How does this inform my teaching and what we've done in the textbook? Uh, here's just a very simple fact. Um, Betsy wrote a study a couple of years ago with a graduate student of hers by the name of Hannah Zlotnick, where they read every single Principles of Economics textbook from page one to the very last page. And every time there was a mention of a person on any page, they coded whether it was a man or a woman, whether they were a business leader, an architect, a politician, whatever it was, um, uh, whether they were doing something or having something done to them, and so on. And the overwhelming fact was for every four mentions of men in an introductory economics textbook, there was only one mention of a woman. Now, put yourself in the... Um, it, you know, think about how that looks and feels to an 18-year-old woman taking her first economics textbook. There's that wonderful um, thing from the old the, the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. You show someone a photo, and the first thing they do is they look for themselves. Hmm. Or show them an economics textbook, and if they can't find themselves on any page, how does the profession feel like it recognises them, welcomes them, that people like them can be economists or can even just study more economics? So we made a very, very self-conscious, concerted, totally serious effort to make sure that the people that we, you know, the business leaders that we profiled, the, um, the economic research that we highlighted, the, everything down to the photos in the margin, represented people of different genders, so I told you before, it was four mentions of a man for every one mention of a woman in, every, in the other textbooks. We just benchmarked. We came in 50.1% female in our book. Um, we made sure that... Um, I had a student complain to me the other day that they'd taken economics and all the problem sets were about golf, a sport of upper-middle-class men. She understood all the economics. She didn't understand the rules of golf. There's no golf in my book. 
We made sure that people were living lives that made sense to students, um, that they could see themselves on the page. We made sure there's a, that names reflect an array of ethnicities. Um, and, you know, if, you, if one wants to criticise that and say, you know, more political correctness mumbo-jumbo, just read the book. It'll read like every other book, just the names will be like names in the real world rather than all Tom and Jane. And if a few more students find themselves there, I'll be thrilled. And the striking thing about this is how easy it is to do. I mean, these are, these are made-up names. So uh, have you noticed since uh, Hannah and Betsy's study whether or not the other textbooks have just quickly revamped? So at least in their examples, they're 50-50. No, Mervyn. None at all. That's extraordinary. Um, and so you'll see things like a table of, you know, 30 of the great entrepreneurs in American history, of whom 30 will be men. So this is not just like, I'm not thinking of enough. This is stuff that if you had any sort of um, awareness, mm. one might edit. Um, you know, some part of this is really easy. Some is really hard. So I introduced my game theory chapter by um, talking about a chess grandmaster. The first chess grandmaster I thought of was a man. The most famous chess grandmasters are. But there's a wonderful, wonderful female chess grandmaster. Um, we have another chapter that talks about a brilliant... Uh, she wants to tell a story of a successful business. And I talked about Spanx. I learned a lot more about women's hosiery in writing that up than probably I ever care to know. Um, so it does take some work. But you're right. In many respects, it's, it's, it's low-hanging fruit. And, um, you know, I'll be thrilled if everyone else does the same. You've also been active in the conversation around uh, the way in which academic seminars should be constructed in economics. Uh, I confess... I always really relish the academic seminar culture. And it's one of the things I miss most about leaving academic economics is that willingness to tell someone who is the authority figure standing up at the front of the room, presenting a paper, uh, that they've made a mistake uh, and that you're going to tell them how to fix it. Uh, that's, that's almost never done in other parts of academia. It's certainly uh, you know, un- unknown within my current profession. Uh, but... It's also got a, a, an, an aspect of hyper-masculinity about it, which uh, I know has, has deterred uh, uh, many women from pursuing the profession. So what do you think of the issues with economic seminars? How do you think they can be fixed without losing that kind of high level of, of scrutiny of ideas? You're such an economist, Andrew, because you see everything <laughs> as a trade-off. And sometimes we can just push the production possibilities frontier out a little bit. So... Um, it's not truth-seeking versus being polite. Um, can we be truth-seeking in a way that's not destructive, needlessly destructive of other people's dignity? My answer is yes. Uh, I've, at a personal level, worked, and I am by no means successful and it's a work in progress, worked over recent years to try to be more constructive. Um, so I know how to raise the objection, you're wrong, mate, here's why, you're a fool, you're a goose. But wouldn't it be a little bit more useful to, to, to suggest, you know, what about if you think about it this way, would this alternative model yield a similar result or a different result? Um, so I just don't see there as being a trade-off. Um, I can see how a hyper-masculine culture leads to uh, a, perhaps a, a greater willingness to butt heads. Um, so I do want us to retain a, a culture of caring deeply about the truth, um, but also we should care deeply about other people and, and their dignity um, when they're in the room, and I think we can achieve both. In 
your uh, your career leading up to this, you've been a prolific uh, academic economist, which means publishing lots of journals, lots of articles in top journals. Um, and unusually, you've moved across quite a wide array of topics, not only within microeconomics, but also quite unusually publishing both in macro and micro. Uh, how has that uh, strategy served you in a, in a profession which is pretty focused on specialisation, especially in recent decades. Yeah, Adam Smith visited the pin factory and discovered there was returns to specialisation and I forgot to read that chapter. (laughs) Um, So I suspect, I I mean, I've now served on many tenure committees and it's really hard to evaluate cases like that. It's just more difficult, it's outside the mould. And I suspect that as a young bloke, it didn't serve me well. I have a different perspective on this. I think I do have an economic specialty. The economic specialty is knowing a little bit about most things. Many other economists know a lot about a few things. And there are certain debates and certain domains, public policy being the most obvious one, where my specialty is really, really helpful. There are certain debates and certain domains where my approach is too shallow and not very helpful. Um, But I have a great deal of affection for economic generalists. and you know, if you thought of yourself as a labor economist and wanted to grow your field, I think of myself as an economic generalist and I want to grow my field. Mm. Um, and I do think the world needs more generalists because at the end of the day, there are only a few deep insights that drive all of economic reasoning. Um, and I suspect there are huge gains from trade across sub-tribes and sub-fields of economics. Um, and, you know, so I'm always happy to encourage people who want to have a go, but I do understand that it comes with career risks. How do you go about encouraging generalists in a, in a specialised world? I've just finished reading uh, David Epstein's book, Range, which makes a, a terrific case for uh, being ra- ranging, ranging widely, at least in your preparatory years, and points out that many of the great sports people played a tonne of different sports when they were young. Many of the great musicians didn't just go into a, a, single, a single instrument. Uh, you can be very good by specialising from age two but great is normally associated with some form of range early on. So this, this ought to apply in economics as well, but, but how do you as a generalist foster more generalists? Probably not very successfully, um, but all academics have various forms of soft power. Uh, you could say to me, oh, our economics department is thinking of hiring, who should we look at? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm really impressed by generalists, so I'm likely to say a generalist. Uh, I used to edit a journal, uh, And there are many of the most important questions in economics, I believe, that would require the skills of a generalist. So I would solicit articles from a generalist. Um, uh, You know, we hire people at the University of Michigan. Um, I'm going to be really impressed with someone who understands all of economics. Uh, When I visit the University of Sydney, sometimes I'm there for job talks, and if someone shows that they only understand one tiny corner of economics, I suspect that it's going to be a... You know, that the the mine will run dry pretty quick, the well will run dry pretty quickly, and I'm unlikely to put my thumb on the scale for them. I remember Steve Levitt once saying that one of the things he looked for in job candidates was people who really loved thinking about economics, who didn't turn off their economic brain after after hours. Uh, do, you, do you find yourself thinking about econ- economic questions a lot out of hours? When do you think about economics where others wouldn't? Um, oh, my favourite. So I, I think a love for economics is a, a wonderful skill. It's a productive skill. It's going to make you a better economist. I'm sure this is true in other fields as well. Um, I often, I, I hope your listeners will excuse the following. Uh, I, I often have young people say, you know, should I pursue a PhD in economics? Or even in political science or some other field. And my advice to them quite literally is, 
when you go to the bathroom, do you take an economics paper with you? Because is it the most vitally important thing you can do right now? Spend the next three minutes, four as you get older, um, reading a paper and learning a little bit more economics. Um, so that's the bathroom test. And if you're not that into it, you're not going to enjoy the next four to six years of your life. Um, you're not going to want to keep investing and writing and working hard at 2am. Um, and it's going to limit, you know, we, sh- we all are more productive when we're passionate about mm. what we're doing. And this is just my test for passion. And honestly, if you've got different views about personal hygiene, you can adapt the poo test. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I come from the era in which we used paper rather than uh, iPads. Um, I'm talking about for, the, <laughs> for reading the article. Um, so, uh, but you know, that's, that's the rough sense of what, what I think it takes to, to be successful as a scholar. You're insanely productive. Uh, you teach a big first year class. You've just finished this large textbook. You're writing columns for the New York Times. Uh, how do you work? And what can we learn from the way in which you work to be more productive? Andrew, almost nothing. Um, you're insanely productive. Um, I'm always battling to keep my head above water. Um, I, in the moments where I feel like I'm not seeing my kids enough, I worry I just can't get enough done, which also might be, the alternative view would be I took on more than I could uh, chew. Um, uh, you know, I use deadlines as strategic weapons against myself. And when you've got people you'll let down, if the work doesn't get done, the work ends up getting done. Um, I fight a lot at the moment against perfectionist tendencies. I'm not saying my work's perfect. I'm saying I fight against, is it ready? Can mm. I show the world? How good, how polished does it have to be? Um, and in some domains, like really the answer is it has to be as polished as you can get it. Um, but in others, it doesn't. Um, and I feel like I'm having to relearn that rule every day. Do you uh, put work out for feedback uh, more often now than you used to? Do do you remember you once uh, making a comment to me that uh, a lot of people in academia think that others will steal their ideas and then later on they realise the challenge is actually getting others to read their ideas. Um, So so you were more inclined to circulate work to large numbers of people for feedback. I've always wanted to aggressively socialise what I do. you know, part of it is that uh, we're not just researchers, we're storytellers. Mm. Um, and you very quickly learn the first time you tell a story, it's not very interesting, or you don't get it right, or the narrative, things aren't in the right order. Um, and, you know, you describe the work to the second person, and you'll describe it more coherently than you did the first time. It's not necessarily you didn't understand it the first time, but it's you, you, you're learning how to tell your story. Sometimes you need to use analogy, Sometimes you need to bring the motivation up front and you tell the story over and over and over again and eventually you you get good at it. You as a politician would understand that. I am certain there are topics you've given speeches on where, you know, it was rusty the first time and then you were bored the second time and told a joke at the 26th minute, led people to laugh. Next time you gave it, you brought that joke right up front, people laughed again Um, and then you got a whole bunch of punchlines you can now use every time you talk about, say inequality um actually i think fields do this as well um take uh, any economic idea the one at the front of my mind is um, asymmetric information when george akalov first wrote the paper about the lemons problem um it was difficult uh it was new uh within a couple of years we taught it to phd students in our doctoral classes 
and we thought that they could understand it. And then we kept telling the story until we understood which parts of the math were doing the work and then how to say them in English instead of math. And then we could teach them to college seniors. Um, we kept telling the story. And that was an important part. You know, eventually we thought that we could teach it to second year uni students. And we keep telling the story. And now 20 years later as a profession, we're now ready to teach it to first year uni students. And we can do it in a way that they walk out and it seems pretty straightforward. And at the end of all that, you're like, how did this bloke win a Nobel? <laughs> and you've got to remember, 20 years ago, we didn't know how to tell the story. And we didn't understand the moving parts and we didn't know what was driving what. George did. The rest of us didn't. Mm. Um, so just, we, like everything else, the more you practice, the better you get at it. Do you find that it takes a certain discipline to create a fairly boring structure to your life in order to be productive around that, uh, that framework? If you could talk to my children and have them create a boring structure to my life, that would be immensely helpful. <laughs> um, I, I uh, lack the personal discipline to be any good at life hacks. So why don't you tell me what I ought to be doing? Well, you've chosen a city with short commuting times in Ann Arbor. That's true. Yeah. Uh, and uh, a, a life which allows you to uh, spend a lot of time either with your kids or at your desk, yep. uh, not sitting in a small metal box. Yep. Um, you don't, you're not distracted by uh, uh, the, uh, the entertainment of New York City, which you've told us uh, is, is not one of your, uh, your favourite cities. No. Uh, does, is that a deliberate choice? Yes. So... The cost of time is high. That's how an economist would say it, right? Mm. And if every day I remember that the cost of time is high, then um, there's a very high uh, bar- bar- a barrier before something can get on my diary. Um, now, that high barrier might be, you know, if you want me to give a talk, are there going to be enough people in the room that's worth my time? Um, if it's my kids, are they actually going to be cute? I'm kidding with that. <laughs> um, uh, and, you know, it's hard to think about that um, where in some sense blessed with so much time um, but then the moment you start thinking about it we're, we're given far too little um, and so just being absolutely relentlessly miserly about that um, is perhaps the only thing I get right um, uh, it, what that does is it removes the element of serendipity earlier in my career before I had that discipline I would say yes to all sorts of weird and frankly dumb things and then I'd turn up at a conference and some guy was running a company and he'd have a lot of data on his hard drive and he'd give it to me. Um, Serendipity is quite an amazing thing. And so I haven't recreated that. Um, so, you know, discipline can, can, can be regimenting and, you know, if you're trying to create something new, you need a little bit more than just a regimented life. You were speaking, we were speaking the other day when we were uh, yarning about... Uh, the importance of thinking about impact and, and your argument that as human beings we're not very good at distinguishing between something that has an impact on 10 people compared to 10,000 people. So that's, I think, the trick, the puzzle and the responsibility of the public intellectual or any of us who want to have an effect on the world out there. We're very good at, and charities understand this, right? So World Vision doesn't ask you for money, they ask you to sponsor a person who has a photo and a name and they write back to you and you can go to bed at night thinking I helped Philip or whatever this person's name is. Now, it's often the case that these charities might be not the highest bang for your buck. You know, maybe it's something like bed nets or deworming or something way less sexy 
where all you're doing is buying netting and sending it to poor villages. Um, but the reality is, you know, maybe you save 10 lives instead of one. Um, and as economists, or as, you know, it seems kind of 10 times more important. And so that whole question of scale then shapes everything we do. Teaching can be both an enormous payoff and a tremendous trap. Because when you teach, you walk into a classroom. If you walk into a classroom of four students, they're all going to be smiling at the end because everyone loves small class sizes. You'll get immense positive feedback and positive reinforcement. Um, but that was four. What if you taught 500? And what if instead of teaching 500, you wrote a column that was read by 50,000 or 500,000? And then you also have to think about who's reading it as well. And the scale of what we do really varies incredibly. Mm. And the thing you've got to remember is every zero makes it 10 times more important. We're just not well programmed to understand that. So, you know, the truth is I work so hard on my textbook because it will be the most, the most read thing I ever write by two orders of magnitude. Um, Meaning for non-economists, a hundred times yes. more, more, more read than anything else. Thank you for speaking English uh, there. Um, and so that, I, you know, I think that's hard. And I think also, you know, academic institutions find this hard. Um, I know that, you know, I've been places where they do things like say, this person's often cited in the press. Being cited in the Detroit Free Press is one thing, being cited in the Wall Street Journal is another. Um, they're again, many orders of magnitude different. Um, so how do, you, how do you spend your time? Which phone calls do you answer? Um, it, you know, it should shape everything we do and it's just a difficult discipline. How does that shape how you allocate time to things like email and Twitter? Um, on email, I'm not very good. I fall for this mistake. A student from the other side of the world writes to me and says that they're very interested in the economics of marriage and divorce, and they're trying to replicate my paper, and can I help them? And I think to myself, well, it'll only take a few minutes, and I help them. And that's, that's, that's what humans do. But it may not have been the highest impact use of my time. Um, Twitter's a funny one. Um, the reason I took up social media like Twitter is actually I used to sit in my office and take calls from several journalists. Four or five in a row might call about the same issue. If I just knock out a couple of tweets, if they all follow me, then instead of talking to five journalists, now I'm talking to 5,000. That struck me as wildly efficient. And that is the reality. That's why, you know, one can be critical of social media for various reasons, but Twitter is one that is very attractive to journalists. Journalists are very attractive if you're interested in impact because each of them has thousands of eyeballs. Mm. Um, so if I can hit thousands of people who each have thousands of eyeballs, thousands times thousands equals a, a big number. Um, and also Twitter doesn't have to be a high cost. Um, you can, uh, one can of course tweet on the way to the bus. If one were unhygienic, one could do it on the toilet. Um, so it, you know, it, it, it again just seems like an easy way that could be moderately high impact. Um, not always, right? Sometimes we have fun, we're social creatures. Let's finish on family. Uh, what, are you, uh, what are you trying to do this year in terms of uh, being a, a better, better dad and a, and a better, better partner to Betsy? Mm. Um, how, what are, the, what are the, uh, the ways in which you're trying to just grow as a parent? What a wonderful question. Um, and, you know, it's one of the wonderful things having you in my life, Andrew, that, that you ask questions like that. Um, and I think we all need someone in our lives who does that. 
Um, I want to listen better uh, and start with an always positive presumption. Um, you know, when you live with someone for a long time, you know the things that they that frustrate you and sometimes you forget the joys you started with. Um, and the same piece of information can annoy you if you start with a negative prior and can thrill you if you start with a positive prior. It doesn't actually matter what the truth is, does it? Um, the two of you can create joy together. Um, so, you know, I want to listen, I want to be more positive about that. And for the kids, frankly, I just want to be more present. Um, get down to their level, look them in the eye, nod at my iPhone, um, and, uh, you know, smile. What's your attitude to their use of technology and iPhones? So that's a hard one. None of us knows the answer, right? Because we are the first generation growing up with mm. this technology. It's impossible for the research to have been done yet to inform appropriate parenting. So we're relying on unscientific intuitions. Um, I think technology be, can, can be tremendously empowering, so I don't want to be a Luddite. I think it can be tremendously addictive, so I don't want to allow excessively addictive behaviours. Um, so in our family, Friday night is electronics night, and the kids knock themselves out and basically get drunk on electronics. Um, and the other six nights of the week, uh, they don't at all. Um, and that means their presence, and it also reduces, the good thing about hard rules is it reduces lobbying. And lobbying is expensive, because lobbying often sounds like nagging. Um, uh, that's obviously going to have to evolve because as Matilda gets older she's going to have more homework on the computer we're going to have to create a space for that um, I'm thrilled the kids have Kindles so I don't regard that as electronics I regard that as a book um, and look we're all just trying to guess this stuff together and um, I'm sure it's not going to judge anyone else's choices on this stuff either Any final uh Tips or thoughts, Justin? Any interesting projects you're working on you'd like people to, uh, to, to f follow? Mate, I have no wisdom. It's deeply flattering that you ask, but um, uh, uh, the, the most puzzling thing in the world is that you would ask me questions about <laughs> the good life. I feel like I know a thing or two about economics um, and the rest of us are just fumbling around. Yeah, but you look... You look gloriously happy. You've always been a happy bloke, but uh, you look as happy now in 2020 as when I've ever known you. So uh, whatever's going on internally, whatever the sort of ducks paddling, ducks feet paddling fast under the water, seems to be, uh, at least on the surface, producing a Justin who looks pretty content with the world. Oh, that's thrilling to hear. Uh, so I'll call that my personal happiness report, and it sounds like I'm getting something right, and uh, I guess that's why we have friends in our lives. Thanks again, Justin. Delighted Thanks, to talk. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. We love getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or a comment on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes. Next week, I'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.